I've got to say, um, you know, Howard, Rodney, it would not surprise me in the slightest if pricing is still very, very strong and going to get stronger because the problem is not getting solved today. There is a requirement for a lot more lithia units in the supply chain than the supply chain can currently handle. Arguably, if the capital doesn't start to flow upstream at the right pace, um, pricing is only going to get more extreme and assets are only going to get more expensive. Welcome back to Rockstock Channel and thanks for checking in. Before we launch into the interview, we'd like to thank all our Patreon sponsors. And for those of you who are new, share a bit about us. RK Equity is an advisory firm run by Rodney Hooper and me, Howard Klein. We are exclusively focused on raising awareness about companies producing or developing the next generation critical raw materials that are powering Tesla's EV battery energy transition. Please register your email at rkequity.com and follow Rodney and me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please also subscribe to this channel, Rockstock Channel on YouTube, as well as Lithium Ion Rocks on SoundCloud for our podcasts. Please note, Rodney and me are not financial advisors or broker dealers. Nothing you hear in this video is investment advice. Please do your own research and read the disclaimer at the end of this video or on our website. Thanks again for the support and let's get into the video. I have Ken Brinsden, uh, the CEO of Pilbara Minerals. I know you, I guess, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago when you were at Atlas Iron, um, and then I was aware of Pilbara early. Uh, I missed the stock when it was at one cent, two cent, you know, three cent, all the way up to a dollar twenty-five. Um, you know, at the previous peak, and, and now to see you, you know, kind of north of two dollars and uh, north of six billion, you know, market cap, you know, four and a half billion U.S. You've surpassed uh, what Atlas Iron, you know, achieved. In our opinion, we see you as the the swing spodumene supplier. Uh, this time last year, I wrote a note, M and A Life in in Western Australia, uh, with with a, with, a, with a vulture, you know, <laughs> over Altura. What was the final purchase price of that? I guess cash plus shares. Yeah, well, the total consideration was it was about two hundred and forty million Australian dollars. I want to talk about your, your joint venture, what's happening with POSCO uh, on the downstream. How is lithium so different, you know, from iron ore? Uh, you could see BHP and, and Rio Tinto uh, earning, you know, 65, 70% margins. Obviously, the, the iron ore price has fallen a bit, for, but for several years, you know, just minting cash um, as major producers and the steel industry is not, you know, super exciting. Um, a place to be or, or, or very high multiples. So, so why is, um, you know, partnering in, in a 30%, you know, JV position with POSCO um, so important? Like why not use your high stock price, raise capital, you know, and acquire more spodumene assets in the way that, um, you know, Ganfeng is doing, right? If you, if you joint venture with POSCO, you, to some degree, you're competing with your customers Skills are in short supply in Quebec, for example. Why not? You know, Live at Namaska would love uh, some mining skill set, I would think, that Pilbara could potentially bring. Why is that not a better strategy, you know, than the partnering downstream? Yeah, no, look, I get the I get the logic that you're exploring there, Howard. And I think the the way to think of it, I think of it is to say, at least in part, I agree with your thesis, but I don't agree in full. Um, our strategy is all about building a portfolio of sales channels and a portfolio of products. And, and we think 
that that portfolio creates a much more flexible business over time. Um, so the best example you have today is to say, well, isn't it fantastic being a merchant seller of spodumene? You know, we are really going to have our day in the sun. Um, the chemical conversion market is short. We have available spodumene. By implication, we should be able to maximise price in the value in the spodumene. And history dictates that that's not always going to be the case, um, and especially when your your principal market is China, in which case we think about the growth of our business as being a portfolio of products, some of which represents merchant spodumene like it is today, great business, and we'd expect it to be good business for, for quite some time yet. But in the medium and the long term, there will be further cycles that support deeper levels of vertical integration and the ability to participate in multiple markets. And by that, I mean literally selling Lithia products all the way around the world, not just to China, not just to, Pos to POSCO in South Korea, but, but to Europe and to, to the North Americas, because they're all going to be important markets um, that are developing in the medium term. Uh, the truth is they're not available today, in which case you've got to find the other alternatives. And that's one of the reasons why we're, um, we're looking to more deeply integrate with POSCO. Korea is the next big mover after China in respect of the combination of battery making capacity and, and, um, and cathode materials, in which case we love the idea that, that we can position our spodumene there. Uh, and, and also win some of the economic margin that we'd expect to emerge um, once you're producing a, a very high quality fine chemical. So, um, so yes, I, I agree, but only in part that you, that you want to be in spodumene. We'd say, yes, that's not a bad place to be, but you don't want that to be your whole business. You should think about a portfolio of products and sales channels. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that like all of your product is going to Ganfeng, General Lithium, and given Tanyi, is, is that correct? Uh, yeah, some, some additional shipments to Great Wall Motor Company and POSCO for the operations around their demonstration plant. And what is the POSLX process? How does it compare to like Metsu Odutech, for example, um, it is being used or contemplated by a number of Holmec, um, you know, Piedmont, critical elements, yeah. Caliber, uh, is it a sulfate-free process, um, which is what Tesla advertised? Yeah, their, their technology is is very, very smart technology and probably one of the few organisations that can pull it off as a function of the amount of money they've spent in research and development. But fundamentally, it's a it's a, an electrodialysis process. So, so they're relying on a high current splitting um, a, a solution that pushes lithium ions in one direction and push, pushes the, um, the sulfur ions in the other. A couple of the key benefits are um, fundamentally a more pure product through that purification uh, process. So, so we would say, you know, really high quality outcome and then the ability to recirculate your reagent load. Uh, basically winning back the, the sulfur ions so that you can regenerate sulfuric acid and keep the, the process closed, minimise the waste, minimise the reagent inputs. And I'd suggest in the first instance, probably you know, a, a generation beyond that proposed by Namaska um, up in Quebec. Uh, and, and I guess the benefit to POSCO 
had sort of working for them is the ability to, to, to spend a lot of money in research and development and several iterations of the um, pilot scale facilities and then the demonstration plant uh, to lock down the, the process combination of cost, quality outcomes and the like. So, yeah, so we're really happy to be aligned with, um, you know, with that combination of technology and, and strength in, in engineering. More broadly, when we think about what Pilbara might do next with its spodumene, it's not typically aligned with a model that you're going to ship your spodumene overseas because we feel like that carries some penalties in the supply chain. So you don't want to be handing your customer a waste problem. You know, why don't we talk a little bit about pricing and, and this BMX um, structure? There is now a really big problem emerging in the industry. Um, there is a lot of chemical conversion capacity that far outstrips the spodumene supply base today. Um, they want to run because chemical prices are strong, um, in which case there is a transfer of value that's making its way upstream to, to the resource. And I've got to say, um, you know, Howard, Rodney, it would not surprise me in the slightest if pricing is still very, very strong and going to get stronger because the problem is not getting solved today. There is a requirement for a lot more lithium units in the supply chain than the supply chain can currently handle. And uh, that means there is every chance that incentive pricing needs to go higher to get more production in the market. We're seeing quite a discrepancy between contractual pricing, you know, with given that um, spot pricing for chemicals is moving so fast. So how does the industry better refine the formula is to narrow the volatility between what you're getting in contract sales and what the spot market's doing. Well, the simple answer is, um, Rodney, that yes, we will put more money, more money, more more product into the BMX sales channel, and the logic in doing so is that we ultimately want better price transparency, and the best way to do that is through. Um, through a, a you know a, a more um, accessible market platform, we expect that, that during the course of next year uh, we'll have about two hundred thousand tons, and maybe even a little bit more, depending on how successful we are with the optimization around our Pilgan plant, um, in addition to the the Nagaju uh, plant production. Um, with respect to this disconnect between spot pricing and offtake pricing. Of course, we agree with the premise that if you have product in offtake, the expectation is it's a longer it's a longer dated relationship. So, so it makes sense that there should be more stability there. Um, but you need the spot market to define the you know the relative position or the tension in the market so that you've got better price transparency. Now that. The way that you know we've deliberately done that with the BMX platform, and and we're going to be you know doing more of it. So so the ability to transfer the effect of the market price via the BMX platform to to our offtake agreements is now an, an important part of the future of the business. Um, the good news is our offtake partners they understand the dynamic that's in play here, and. Um, and actually, arguably, it's kind of the completely re reverse position to where we were in the middle part of last year before demand started coming back. 
um, you know, offtake agreements were difficult to get to stick and, and we had to run the plant at a lesser production, uh, even though we had more capacity. Um, and we did our best to maintain relationships with long-standing customers or people that we expected to be long-standing customers into the future. And it would appear that the reverse is equally true now. There's recognition from buyers that the circumstance that's arisen today does represent another extraordinary circumstance, albeit the other way. And, um, and they're concerned about their ability to maintain continuous supply. So hence, we can have a rational conversation about some level of equalisation in price. Um, that means we should get a fundamentally better price for the product in offtake. The concept of price floors was, was a good one um, in the sense that it would ensure that, that new producers could survive and stay in business. But we saw that model fall over as chemical prices just couldn't hold and the guys couldn't carry that cost. So one of the things I guess one could consider is some kind of a futures exchange or a trading platform that's sort of longer dated than spot where you have... Um, you can execute volumes and have some kind of a clearinghouse guarantee on financial performance. Um, you know, do you think that's something that that could possibly, you know, take off and, and see spodumen concentrate rather than sort of a bridging between spot and long, long dated formula based, you know, uh, you know, where you can get material out the door at a predetermined price so one can commit to expansion expansion plans. Yeah, I think that is a natural evolution for the industry and, and that there will be, it'll actually become an imperative because it'll become so obvious that there is a problem with the flow of capital upstream that people will naturally want to look for financial solutions to, to facilitate that trade. Um, I think what's happening in, in the lithium raw materials world and, and arguably battery raw materials more generally is just a natural evolution of markets. And we want to make sure at Pilbara um, that we're sitting at the, the forefront of this discovery, if you like, hence the idea that we, you know, if there's no platform available, why not go and build one yourself? Um, now, we're, we've, we've taken the, the, um, the role of kind of first mover but, but arguably, of course, people will want to follow. And actually, in some respects, we're incentivized to see that happen because um, the more liquidity there is in these markets, the better the chance that you'll get financial players who, who want to participate, create the instruments that, that flow from that trade. Um, it feels like this process is now, um, well, whilst it's, it's formative, it's definitely in train. You know, it's happening. And, and as to how long it takes, well, probably faster than most people think. Um, I've just recently had inquiry um, about the potential of the XG, SGX exchange in Singapore getting involved in, in the chemicals trade and arguably even the spodumen trade. So, so yeah, I think and the LME, of course, is doing something similar. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's just going to happen as a matter of course because there will be more capital required upstream. And I guess my angle on this is really, you know, you have a clearinghouse so that there can be no, you know, it's, it's something interposed. You can't just suddenly have a change in circumstance and then things don't hold anymore. You, 
yeah. the beholden through the clearinghouse, which I think is going to be the key element. So those names you're mentioning are good ones to do that. What do you think is a reasonable spodumen concentrate, let's say 6% price that you can cover your costs and earn a decent margin and have the flexibility? What's the sort of industry-wide is your gut to keep you know, growth going and keep supply expanding? There's really four big meaningful mines, Pilgangora, Wajina, Green Bushes, and arguably Mount Holland. The combination of location, accessibility of infrastructure, quality in the resource. I think they're, you know, they're the big four. But you're not going to incentivize them to continue to expand production unless pricing is probably north of 600 to 650 US dollars a tonne. Um, and they are the low-cost mines. So everybody else will require a price higher than that, would be my view. So, Ken, if you look at uh, chemical conversion, cathode and planned battery production, you just see, you know, when you look at the benchmark with a cathode, it's just China, China, China. So it looks set that they are going to uh, remain dominant in that area, um, but they don't have any meaningful spodumen concentrate or lipidolite feed supplier of their own. So if the market's going to move to something like, you know, what you've got with a BMX, with a spot sales and a, a futures, is that such a bad thing? You know, in other words, if the demand is in China, um, changing the way that the market supplies them could meaningfully shift the risk away from, you know, a repeat of what we saw the last couple of years. So is that such a bad thing if you change the way you supply them? to have China still remaining a huge market. More price transparency will create a better environment for the industry to be able to raise capital and establish meaningful mines that are supporting the industry over the medium and the long term. As it stands today, and based on actually our own experience, if the industry has to go through the experience that Pilbara Minerals went through, the combination of very, very high cost of financing and, and uh, you know, the punishing sort of downturn that took out, you know, some of our peers, um, you're not going to get any more new mines developed. There has to be much more sophisticated systems. And, and I'd like to think that um, in some respects, we're providing a bit of a shining light there to say, well, look, here's some tools that, that will help the industry over time. And, you know, for Pilbara Minerals, we, we'd say, well, that's great. That's, that's hopefully a great you know, great um, uh, model. It's going to create a stronger industry over time. But geez, it, it'll be nice to make some serious money in the next eighteen months or two years, whilst the whilst the spike in <laughs> inevitable spike in pricing emerges. If I can just ch chime in there, you just actually um, made me think about the link. Your BMX is like that transition when it, it iron iron or moved from contract pricing to spot pricing. The, tri the yeah. transparency that you talked about, you know, which was good for the overall iron ore market for a period of time, and the iron ore price just soared enormously in a period of time where you had massive profits, massive enthusiasm for iron ore juniors, um, and we represented a few of them. Atlas bought one of our clients, Ferroz. I do see something similar potentially happening here 
in the lithium market broadly, but in the spodumene market in particular, there's a number of uh, new exploration companies coming out in Western Australia and Quebec, uh, Chris Evans, you know, X Altura, you know, and Winsome, um, you know, but there's, there's any number, there's lots of spodumene in the world and lots of spodumene to be explored. And if prices are going higher from the 1320, <laughs> which you just telegraphed, they, you, you think that they will, companies like Core, just to, to your cost of capital consideration, Core just raised equity, straight equity, fully financed. They're not going to experience what you experience, what Altura experienced with a super high cost debt. So the equity markets are, are open. They're liquid. Mineral Resources just sold overnight a very large block of, of stock in your stock. So while that's happening, I'm hopeful that more and more, the, the industry needs it. We, we had we just interviewed Red Spencer of Canaccord, and he's saying the industry needs three and a half billion dollars a year, uh, you know, money raised, you know, in each of the next ten years. So I'm hopeful, you know, more of that, more of that will come. But it, it just, I was, I chimed in here because I'm, I'm making that connection. It's reinforcing those early years of the transition of the iron ore market from fixed contracts to, um, you know, spot pricing. It was very exciting time, uh, you know, 2000, post-financial crisis, 2009, 10, 11, 12 were great iron ore years. And I think you you, you will experience, um, it's only been four or five years here, like you had two build years, two down years, but but now, now it's harvest time. I, I, I went back and I listened to our, our interview two years ago and, and we had talked about, everyone was talking about an oversupply uh, we were called it an under demand um, in China, you know, in 2018 and, and 19. And now you're talking about all of these converters in China, you know, there's too much demand, but all of those converters in China two years ago were undercapitalized. But how did these converters suddenly, you know, become so well capitalized to be ready, you know, and good counterparties to purchase your your spodumene. And to that point, we talked about quality. You know, Yawa apparently has qualified into Tesla. Uh, I don't know if General Lithium has, you know, how many qualified Chinese converters are there really um, outside of, you know, the tank cheese, the Almarls, you know, from Hard Rock uh, that could qualify into a Tesla, BMW, a, a Volkswagen. The chemical converters that are sort of deeply tied to tier one battery manufacturers, and especially um, those in you know Japan and Korea, you, you could count them on one hand. They are pretty much the old guard of the chemical conversion industry. Um, and then you have the the supply into what what now would be viewed as being tier one battery manufacturers in China, like CATL. Um, BYD, I think you'd find there would be levels of qualification. Um, they may not be quite as, as stringent, depends on the battery technology, but maybe not quite as stringent as, as through Japan and Korea. Um, and then everybody else is probably serving, you know, either lesser lights in, in the battery manufacturing world or even other markets. Um, you know, maybe even ceramics and the like. So, yeah, so that's part one. Then part two to your question was, um, you know, where did they come from? Despite the fact it was a tough couple of years, there was still capital flowing into the industry. Um, so I'd highlight a couple of examples. 
Um, there was there was chemical conversion capacity that had been already been built really before the, the market had turned down, at least not in a meaningful way. So for example, um, general lithium I'd put in that category. Um, they built new hydroxide capacity, uh, next generation plant, and it was really only being commissioned just as the market was starting to turn south. Uh, new players have come to the market, like Ibn Tianyi, who is very, very well funded um, in support of the CATL supply chain. So they were building anyway, no matter what the, the, uh, the market looked like. Uh, Yongshan, similar deal, well, well funded by significant groups building through the lowest of parts of the cycle, now getting set for commissioning. And they're not small facilities that they're building. You know, they're pretty major capacity. So, so that's where the, the, um, the bottleneck has now come from. Uh, they want to operate in support of more significant supply chains like CATL or Shanshan. And, and they want to operate because there's a healthy market. Well, in theory, there's a healthy margin given that chemical prices are, are on a run. Rodney, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'll just make reference to one of the futures exchanges um, within China, the Wuchi Exchange. I don't know if you've come across that one. Yeah, uh, pricing is on a serious run there and now, now moving into to record territory, even for pricing in China. So, so there is some of what we've talked about already happening, um, albeit relatively small in scale, but nonetheless, another, another data point to, to prove that you know, the evolution of the industry's pricing mechanisms is underway. Yeah, I mean, what they've done is they've sort of like qualified or been very specific as to what that contract is and then and then traded it. And I think that's fine. Within a, a, a range of it, you could still have sort of very specific metrics on the impurities, as you said. It's, I don't think the grade, as long as you, the impurities sit within a reasonable range, the guys should understand what their yields will be of your material and what they can bid. So I think if you do that, um, you know, you, you could have some flexibility as to, you know, rather than being bespoke cargo by cargo, you could have a fairly longer dated contract going out on, say, your material. Yeah, Rodney, if you're buying spodumene, you can take a view too on the spot market. And it just so happens that the guys who bought our cargo were absolutely right because in theory, you know, they, the people at the time might have thought, gee, that's an expensive, you know, ton of spodumene. But the reality is, in the six weeks since we've run that auction, um, chemical pricing has run another, you know, six or seven thousand US dollars, well, six thousand US dollars a ton. So they were right every day of the week back then. Um, if you're buying spodumene in the knowledge that it's only going to hit the market as hydroxide or, or carbonate in two or three months' time, well, why not spend? speculate that you can afford to pay a bit more for your spodumene, especially given the, the velocity of the, the um, <laughs> lithium chemicals price. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, in, in that instance, you were buying in summer before we even get to the busy season. I, I do think that if you were to um, put parameters around that, you could do longer dated stuff as could others. And um, so I'm looking forward, I guess, to seeing that because it's on the basis of, of, of uh, having, I think, a clearinghouse or a tier one, shall we call it, financial institution backing the performance, the financial performance when it comes time to buy, that guys will have the comfort to then go out and do the expansions and what have you and 
if you've got a tier one clearing house, then the discount rate of what people will be prepared to fund you against that will be a lot lower. So we're going to see, I think that's an evolution that needs to happen. The only thing that could spoil this, the party um, at present is, uh, is Wajina, you know, coming on stream for Spodjamine if that were to happen. Albemarle has said, controls that essentially and said they have no interest in selling Spodjamine. Yeah, far be it from, from me to tell Albemarle how to run their um, lithium <laughs> strategy, but I, I do think it would be crazy if they sold Spodjamine. Um, only to have that same spodumene ton compete with their lithium chemicals. I think the, the much more logical response from Albemarle is to control chemical conversion capacity in China so that they can feed downstream the spodumene. Um, to me, that seems like a, a much more um, sophisticated and, and sort of more nuanced response to, to the current market conditions. That's the circumstance by which I think Wajina restarts. So I think a tolling relationship is probably doable. Um, and that would facilitate the, the spodumene making its way downstream. Actually, Albemarle have done that historically as well. General Lithium was the, the toller of choice over many, many years, Rockwood leading into Albemarle. So it's not as though it's foreign to them. Uh, yeah. Any comments on, you know, the cost inflation in WA and you know, competition for workers and the like? And and we have um, your guide. You put out guidance just a couple of weeks ago, the 2022 guidance, 395 to 430. You expect that to kind of go down at 340 to 375. But I remember the early days of um, financing the project originally and, and the costs were meant to be somewhere between 200 and 300 dollars. In the period of time since we first published a pre-feasibility study about the time of the, the first reserve, the strip ratio has increased each time we've grown the reserve. Um, and that's a function of most of the tons, not all of them, but most of the tons coming at depth as compared to near surface. So as you mine deeper in an open pit, it's almost inevitable. Uh, you will carry a slightly higher strip ratio. And that's meant that basically each time we print a reserve, uh, we have printed a slightly higher cost. So um, in the period of time that you described, sort of going back to 2016, broadly speaking, life of mine costs have gone from just under 300 US dollars a tonne to about 340 or 350 US dollars a tonne. By far the lion's share of that is driven by the strip ratio increasing um, as compared to sort of broader views around cost pressure. Uh, the current market um, for people is tight. Um, we, we have some benefit in the industry we're in. So it's seen as being a new sort of growing industry. Um, Pilbara has a higher profile these days. So that's helping us attract people. So as much as recruiting staff in the mining game in Western Australia is tough with all the borders closed. Um, we're still able to get people, which is great. Um, contracting costs, yeah, bits and pieces of, of escalation and price pressure, but nothing like what we saw with the hyperinflationary hyper environment that was in iron ore back in, you know, that period 2010, 2011, 2012. Uh, that was extreme. 
And, uh, you know, we were, WA was suffering from huge investment in, in iron ore production capacity, port capacity, and, and combined with oil and gas growth. So that was really painful. Um, whilst we've experienced a little bit of that similar pressure, um, it's nothing like it was back then, Howard. The Tangshi had this auction um, last year. Independence Group, you know, emerged from it. Um, there were rumors, you know, BHP, Rio, FMG, maybe even you know Gina Reinhardt. You know, there's a number of players in in WA. You know, Rio has now announced 2.4 billion dollars. You know, on Yadar. Uh, you know, BHP and and Andrew Forrest are are fighting over you know a nickel asset. You know, battery materials is very much, um, you know, front of mind, you know, in a number of the majors, you know, in your backyard, you know, but Gina Reinhardt invested in, you know, Vulcan, um, you know, a deal, a DLE project. You know, where are these major players in, in Western Australia and iron ore, you know, why are they not, you know, in, in the game for spodumene or, and do you think that they, they might, or they're just, you know, maybe buy you? Um, yeah, well, the majors uh, have a dilemma, don't they? The, the idea that, if they bolt on battery raw materials, does it carry enough scale to really move the needle? Um, and I think increasingly what you're going to find is that that philosophy changes and it'll be motivated by two key drivers. Um, the first is that there'll be protesters out the front of their AGMs, um, you know, um, bemoaning their portfolio of assets that are all dirty. Um, that might be one scenario. Um, another is that they'll come to appreciate that this, this um, uh, the new energy sector and the battery raw materials actually does represent the future of the mining industry and natural resources more generally, in which case they will have to get set at some point in time. Um, and it's not going to go away and the scale is only going to grow. And for all those reasons, um, I think you'll start to see them making more meaningful moves. Arguably, if the capital doesn't start to flow upstream at the right pace, um, pricing is only going to get more extreme and assets are only going to get more expensive. It's easy to imagine that, that you know, at some point in time, there'll be another cycle, but I don't know. It depends on whether supply can catch up with demand from here, I would say, Howard. Um, and based on the current rate of growth, I'd say probably not. Consumers are genuinely switched on to the, to the EV thematic now. I think you can see that in most markets around the world. And uh, it's not going away. The car companies have, have finally worked that out. And they're now all starting to move in sync to build out more EV capacity and battery making capacity. But there hasn't been enough investment upstream, at least not yet. So going back to your point that there's only four major mines and the majors like BHP and Rio, et cetera, they, they, that, that's in their mindset is to go big. Uh, you know, perhaps there's some uh, you know, takeover premium uh, being built into uh, Pilbara's stock uh, today uh, above and beyond um, you know, the, the forecasted you know, EBITDA because... Uh, you know, we were just uh, doing some math, um, you know, versus your guidance, right, uh, on 2022, and then we just over 23 and, and made some kind of forecast of what 2025 might be. If, if you're at, you know, 825,000 tons, call it, you know, by 2025, you know, and if spodumene prices are, you know, 800, you know, you'd be generating, you know, $367 million of EBITDA that puts you on a today 12 times EBITDA. 
at a 49% margin. Your prices are, you know, quite a bit higher where they are today in your spot market, you know, it's more like 70% margins, you know, and you'd be six times EBITDA, right? But th that, that's where Rio trades, you know, six, seven times EBITDA, you know, on where prices were, you know, a couple of months ago. Uh, but that's a that's a today generating cash flow. This is we're talking you know 2025 and and you're you know nearly tripling production you know in 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 the form of that that estimate. Three years ago, you did not envision you know the downturn of 2018, 2019, 2020. Obviously, you couldn't have predicted COVID. You're taking Altura you know off the market. Definitely had an impact on the supply side. What could derail this right now? We're all talking bullish again, so we may be wrong. <laughs> so where, where, where could there be the hiccup? I liked your analogy under demand as being a key driver in, you know, in that second half of 2018, 2019, first half of 2020. China pulling the, the subsidy support for the industry, at least not to the same extent that it had been in the period from 2015. Um, had a really big impact through the supply chain, cash crunch, and, and as a result, demand dried up, people took advantage of stocks and the like. So, yeah, very painful period. Here today, it's a broader base of demand, and I see that as being really important. Key, key markets, ex-China, we're talking about Europe, um, North America is probably the next mover, um, Korea itself as a key supplier to the rest of the world. So. It's a much, much bigger demand story. And it's brought, the effect of COVID has brought forward demand that otherwise people might have seen in 2023. So, yeah, so the demand story is much more fulsome. So, what impacts that? Well, I guess my view is that if there's enough chemical, then you'll see the spodumene prices moderate. Um, but today, there's neither enough spodumene nor chemical. So spodumene is driving, is going to, you know, for the foreseeable future, it's going to drive the headline chemicals price in China, which is going to translate well to international chemicals pricing. That's the demand or the, the pricing sort of dynamic I see. It's probably with us for, at the very least, at least another 12 to 18 months, um, because there is no really material new supply that's going to hit the market in that short term. Altura is one of them, but that's in the scheme of things only a relatively small, you know, has a relatively small part to play. Whilst Wajina might restart, if, you know, in my view, if there's a tolling relationship emerge or they're able to control, somehow control, maybe it's ownership, chemical conversion capacity in China, then yeah, that might very well restart Wajina. But Wajina is not going to be a fast mover in restarting. Um, our experience would indicate it takes minimum, you know, 12 to 18 months worth of optimization to get it in into a reasonable shape from a production point of view, especially the combination of production and quality. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like we're okay for a little while yet. Um, and, and you'd like to think that demand is is continuing to grow from here. I do believe that consumers are now switched on to the EV and people have genuinely got to answer that question if I'm buying my next car, you know, is it, am I going to hang on to my internal combustion engine car until I buy an EV or I'm just going to buy an EV? I think that's that's almost to the point where where the average consumer is getting.